So we've made it to the first chapter of Jeremiah. Our overview is behind us, and uh, we sure are excited. Amen. So it's our sincere hope that last week's overview, that session, blessed you. Tonight we are definitely going to finish the first chapter, and it is going to be a foundational chapter for every chapter that comes after it in the book. Uh, Last week, we covered the nature of Hebrew prophetic works. We covered the political backdrop of Jeremiah's time period. We even looked at the impact of Israel's geography on the language that is utilized in the book. Lastly, we looked at the profound personal life of Jeremiah. All four of these factors are going to come into play in the first chapter tonight. You're going to see that. Additionally, last week we attempted to whet your appetite by covering the first few verses in uh, Jeremiah. We even gave you homework so that you could prepare for the depth of this first chapter. Tonight we begin the ministry and the call of the prophet Jeremiah. We're going to pray and we're going to begin in verse 1. As necessary, we're going to remind you of things we've already mentioned, and we are frequently going to add to them at great length. So as we get to those first few verses, try very hard not to tune out thinking that you heard it last week. We've prepared some 30 slides for you, and we are considering a way in which we can release the visual aids weekly and then the notes at the end. We don't have that worked out yet, but we... Very well might. So now we're at the place and the time when uh, I think we want Assad to stand and pray for Jennifer to read the first chapter to us, and uh, then we'll begin going through it line by line. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth, the territory of Benjamin. The words of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year of Zedekiah son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ah, sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. 
But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth, said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. And the word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north, I answered. The Lord said to me, from the north, disaster will be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Get, your, get yourself ready. Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. Do not be terrified by them, or I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, and a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but will not overcome you. For I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Well, amen. We have a lot to dig into this evening, and we're excited to build upon the principles that we began to learn, and tonight we will utilize from our previous week. Amen. That in mind, Brother Linton, if you would help us out, just begin in verse 1, and we're going to get started. The words of Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, one of the priests at Anathoth, in the territory of Benjamin. Look, you should remember from our last session that we pointed out that this should not be taken as Jeremiah's words, but rather... Jeremiah expressing the word of the Lord in his own words as God placed it in him and in his mouth. Now the word here in the Masoretic is devar, and we have a slide for you about it. Devar, word, matter, affair, thing, something, word of God. We will get into this a little more, but it carries more connotation than just syllables coming out of a man's mouth. It has other characteristics in the Hebrew mind. But it is used 181 times in Jeremiah, as opposed to 45 times in Isaiah, 79 in Ezekiel, and 76 times in the 12 collective minor prophets. In the entire canon, we have it used 866 times. So that means that just a little bit over 20% of those occurrences all are within Jeremiah. The man was emphasizing the word that God was giving him and the frequency and pace at which God was giving those words was significantly greater than in other periods of history. One of the reasons that we wanted you to be able to visualize that slide and we took the time to type it out is in the charismatic world we often think of a word having come from God to us in a vacuum. What we would like you to see is that there's an association between the fact that the book of the law was discovered 
during Josiah's reign and the beginning of Jeremiah's ministry, and then he emphasizes the Word of God more than any of the other prophets in the Bible. The best prophecy, the most accurate God-breathed words in the world are always an expansion of what God has already said in His Torah. They never replace, they never abrogate, they only make clearer its application to your present situation. And Jeremiah is a very clear example of that. Last week we mentioned to you the Hebrew Devar, but we also showed you the Greek in the Septuagint. When the Jews translated the word of God into Greek in the Septuagint, they chose a specific word here in Jeremiah's writing. In Greek it says, the saying of God which came unto Jeremiah the son of Hilkiah. That Strong's number, Greek 4487, on the next slide you can see the definition of that. It is rhema. It denotes that which is spoken, what is uttered in speech or writing. The significance of rhema as distinct from logos. There's another Greek word for word, and it's logos. That is uh, the written word. This word, rhema, is exemplified in the injunction to take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Here the reference is not to the whole of the Bible, but to the individual scripture, which the Spirit brings to our remembrance for use in time of need. Come on. It refers to the specific word given to the specific individual for the specific time of need. That's good. Jeremiah was expressing the God-breathed word for his time directed by the Spirit. He wasn't just, you know, standing up and reading what Deuteronomy says. He was taking Deuteronomy, reading Deuteronomy, and then expressing how Deuteronomy applies to the people around him. Jeremiah had the right word for the right time. Now before we move on to verse 2, we want to remind you of an error that people often make in conflating two men named Hilkiah. It mentions Hilkiah in verse 1 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is not descendant from the same Hilkiah that found the book of the law in Chronicles. His father simply had the same name And we want to show you a slide so you can see a little bit of our research. This is a genealogy in 1 Chronicles 6.13. It says, Shalom, the father of Hilkiah. Hilkiah, the father of Azariah. Who is not mentioned there? Jeremiah. This is a different Hilkiah. Azariah, the father of Sariah. Sariah, the father of Jehozadak. And so on and so forth. It is impossible to conceive of Ezra recording this genealogy and excluding Jeremiah if he were the son of the same Hilkiah that found the law. Simply, Ezra would have just written Jeremiah if this is the same man. There are several other reasons relating to the line of Zadok, the line of Zadok being the priesthood at the time versus Ithamar, but they are not worth exploring in our limited time here tonight. For now, just take note that the Hilkiah that found the law and the Hilkiah that fathered Jeremiah are two different men. You guys got that? We just saved you a ton of research going down uh, rabbit trails that are unnecessary. So uh, let's pick up in verse 2, and we're going to read down to verse 3. The word of the Lord came to him in the thirteenth year of the reign of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, and through the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, down to the fifth month of the eleventh year, of Zedekiah, 
son of Josiah, king of Judah, when the people of Jerusalem went into exile. So we spent a great deal of time talking to you about the nature of Hebrew prophets. We spent a great deal of time talking to you about the political background to the book of Jeremiah. And there's a reason for that. It helps bring into focus what happened prior to Jeremiah, what happened in the early parts of his ministry, who his contemporaries were, and the extent to which God is having compassion on his nation in the midst of judgment by constantly reminding them of what the Word says. Uh, in light of that, I wanted to show you a slide that will probably be difficult for you to read from your seats, but we highlighted a few things. King Josiah is reigning from about 640 to 609. Remember, dates uh, before the Common Era work backwards. Well, Jeremiah's career is somewhere right around 627 to 588 or 587, depending on how you read a couple passages. That means that Jeremiah is probably born right around 607. And uh, Daniel, the prophet, or Daniel is a prophet, but he's in the writings in the Tanakh, is born around 621. That gives you an idea of the age difference between these men. Yeah. Uh, Ezekiel, also born right around 621. If you look carefully, you'll see that Joel and Habakkuk and several of the Nahum, they, they overlap Jeremiah's ministry. When we read those as disconnected works, it would be as silly as hearing three or four prophecies in this room mm -hmm. and <laughs> disconnecting them because they came from different people. These men were prophesying largely to the same groups of people in the same time periods. And they really should be taken as a whole in that regard. Now, both Ezekiel and Daniel are considerably younger than Jeremiah. But one of the things that we wanted you to take note of last week is that the reign of Josiah, while it didn't look incredibly fruitful, it didn't ward off captivity, it did provide the environment where men were raised up yeah. that could teach the people how to survive the, the captivity. That has incredible overtones for our time because we believe judgment is coming, that it cannot be stopped. And our task is to raise up a people that stand through Amen. that judgment Amen. honoring God. Amen. Our task is not to ward off judgment at this point. We believe that it cannot be stopped. You kill a million babies a year, you, you tend to catch God's attention. Uh, not to mention all of the other wickedness that is happening daily in our news. But we are able to raise up a generation of people that will guide this nation and the world at large through whatever comes next, Come agreeing with God and seeing a righteous remnant saved. Yes. Amen? Amen? Let's pick up in verse 4. So, saints, we closed last week's session by drawing personal and practical application from these verses. We looked at other places. The scripture makes clear that every believer has a destiny. We looked at a plan, a design being set apart and awakening to God's purposes. I have to show you that slide again just for your remembrance. I'm sorry. No problem. 
Well, we'll, we'll read it to you. The slide said, every believer, that there is a plan for your life. Every believer, there is a design for your function. Every believer can be set apart for God's use. Every believer has a day of appointment where you awaken to the work that God has before you. That's true of every believer. So after going through scripture strings on that subject, we reminded you that Jeremiah 1.5 was written to and about Jeremiah. Now, while that sounds like an astounding overstatement, as Christians we tend to spiritualize and personally apply things in a way that can be both healthy and unhealthy. We looked at Jeremiah specifically as this related to him. Many have undertaken this particular passage to force it to support their particular beliefs, specifically Calvinistic hyper-predestination for all men. I want to tell you tonight that these kinds of arguments are erroneous and unnecessary. We want to look at the text for its intended purpose. The reality is that they were said to Jeremiah for a very specific purpose and reason. He was known, formed, set apart, and appointed from the womb. Like This speaks to the importance of his task within the national destiny of Israel as a predestined nation. Now that's kind of a profound statement, and we're, we're going to not just fly through that. We're really going to break that down for you, because it's not something that's understood well in our time. People are confused about the word and the way verses apply to them because they're confused about the nation to which God said it to and the way that those verses apply to that nation. So we get every, every varied camp that you can have. And there's no hope of understanding Jeremiah without understanding his theology first. So we have another slide we'd like to show you if we can that is on the topic of other men that were set apart from the womb. Now, when we consider the fact that we applied to everybody here that we had been set apart by God, this is specifically men that the Lord said explicitly in the text, prior to them being born, they were set apart. So we have Samson in Judges 13, Samuel, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Jesus, all the way on to Paul. When we're considering these men's lives, Samson, he was a judge, he was a leader, and a deliverer of Israel on a corporate level. Samuel, Samuel was a judge, a prophet, a leader. He was a man who installed and participated in the removal of kings. Jeremiah was a national prophet of Israel. John the Immerser was another national prophet of Israel. And of course, Jesus Christ, the king of Israel, the son of David. Paul, a Jewish apostle that was declaring the gospel first to Israel, first to the Jew, then to the mysterious Gentile Graftians for the purpose of inspiring Israel towards jealousy for their own God. Israel has a national destiny that is preordained, foreknown, elect, prescribed in advance. Every man that is demonstrably said to be set apart from birth, so from the time they were in their mother's womb, Every man like that is in the service of Israel and serves the national destiny of Israel. So before we move forward, because we're going to have to look at some, we get to look at uh, connections between the book of Romans and the book of Jeremiah. Understand that everybody on that list is predestined in the sense that they relate to Israel. 
you do not find a Norwegian, you do not find a Colombian, you do not find a Canadian mentioned in the Scripture as preordained to do something from the womb. And the very few times that you see a Gentile mentioned, it is always in relation to what they will do with Israel. Now, if you miss that point, then you walk away with an understanding that every human being has pre-ordered footsteps that you have no choice in. And it's simply not true. So we want to consider your homework from the book of Romans. In doing so, we'll put your understanding on better footing regarding the centrality of Israel in God's destiny for the world. And... We want to guard you against the errors made in centuries past that are still being prominently propagated today. Almost all of you come from theological backgrounds that are so deeply flawed you don't even know where those flaws are. Let's start with the two passages that you were supposed to examine in your homework. We put them on a slide called Israel is foreknown. Okay. We wanted to make it push out for you. <laughs> so somebody help me out and read Romans 8, 28 through 30 with emphasis on the highlighted word. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. I have been discussing this verse with people for well over 20 years. Um, They always walk in with a theological framework that Israel is not the center of, even when they love Israel. So they cannot understand Paul's theology where Israel is the center of his theology. And strangely enough, just reading the rest of what Paul wrote is a hermeneutic key for you that really cannot be missed. Romans 11, 1 through 2, on the right-hand side of the screen, says, I ask then, did God reject his people? And because there's a question mark there, you know, you might ask who are his people? Aside from the fact that he uses the strongest negating term possible when he says, by no means, which could be translated, hell no. Look at the next phrase. I am an Israelite. There is no way around the fact that Paul is calling Israelites God's people. But he goes further. In only two verses, he says, a descendant of Abraham. Now, you very well may be considered a child of Abraham by faith, but you are not by descent, and you are not who he is speaking about in Romans 11, 2. In verse 2, God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. The one people group that Paul makes the claim are foreknown by God, predestined by God, is Israel. When you begin to take that seriously, this passage takes on a consistency with all the rest of the Bible that otherwise it would be robbed from. Now, we're not teaching the book of Romans this evening, but since a complete misunderstanding of Romans is so prevalent, 
We want to suggest to you that Paul's own language answers the issue of election and predestination. The answer is that the nation of Israel, not every human being ever born, Israel is predestined to be conformed as a nation to the image of the Son. That is Paul's claim. It's written in plain language. And when we reread these verses, inserting the hermeneutic key that you now have, it makes perfect sense. Let's reread Romans 8, inserting the word Israel, where you now know Paul intended Israel to be what he's pointing at. And we know that in all things God works for the good of Israel, who have been called according to his purpose for Israel. For those God foreknew Israel, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Israel, and those he predestined Israel, he also called Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now, before we move through key points about this, you need to know that the book of Jeremiah opens just like the book of Romans. That the first two chapters of both books are almost completely parallel. They both concern the idea that because of a stumbling into judgment, is there any hope for Israel? And they both tell you that there is still hope for Israel, that God's word has not failed, will not fail, never fails. That is the entire point of both books. Judgment is certain and restoration is certain because God promised both in the Torah. There may be no more abused verse in the Bible than verse 30 of Romans 8, like Eric said. Calvin's mistake is that he applied predestination to everyone Outside of Israel. Say outside. Outside. Our mistake in today's time is that we all too often do not apply predestination to the nation of Israel. Do you catch the difference? We seem to fall into these two camps. Either the whole world is predestined, which is absolutely absurd given how the book ends, or nobody is predestined and the entire point is Israel is predestined, and it was a mystery that you could be included in that destiny at all. Look, the most likely Hebrew backdrop for verse 30, when it says, and those he predestined, he also called, those he called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. The most obvious backdrop to that is clearly the patriarchs. Now, why would we say that? Because the Bible begins... With that story in Genesis, when you approach the Bible from the wrong end of it, you shockingly draw the wrong conclusions. But if you start at the beginning of the Bible and you do not encounter Romans 8 until you have been through 39 books of the Tanakh, then you can draw the right conclusions. But if we're honest, how many of you read all 39 books of the Old Testament before you encountered the 8th chapter of Romans? Not one in a room that is full of the most biblically literate people that I've ever met. Not one. See, that is the genesis of our problem. Look, this is where Genesis begins. It's where the story begins. 
And if you start from the correct end of the story, then the story becomes clear. I want to show you a slide about the patriarchs in Genesis. And look at this. Abraham is predestined to become a blessing to the whole planet. When God first spoke to Abraham, he spoke about what Abraham's descendants would do to the whole planet. Can you see clearly that he was predestined to become a blessing? There was a plan in effect. The next patriarch is Isaac. Isaac is the promised son called forth from barrenness to fulfill the promise of Israel. Even before Isaac existed, God called him forth because he would take that that banner from Abraham to the next generation. Jacob is justified by his trust in Adonai and becomes Israel, the prince of God. Joseph is rejected by his brothers, but he was glorified by God as their savior and the savior of the world. He was initially rejected, but... then became glorified. Now, we're going to go through a few passages to help you with that. But outside of the teaching in this church, have you ever heard that Hebrew backdrop as the explanation for Romans 8? Okay. That's not because we're the only ones that have it. It's just because it's that rare in our time that people understand the nature of the Bible itself. When they read Romans 8, they envision themselves in Romans 8 instead of the man and the culture that is writing it. If you do that with the book of Jeremiah, then many, many times you come away with the idea that God is done with Israel. Divorce, finished, over. Jeremiah doesn't have that understanding. A whole uh, synopsis of the book doesn't yield that understanding. But nearly every person that believes God has done with Israel, quotes Jeremiah in part and parcel rather than understanding the whole work. The same way they quote Paul without understanding his whole work. So we want to take the time to help you understand the foundational elements that Jeremiah walks into his prophecies with. Remember, he quotes the word with more frequency than any other prophet. He is not violating what came before him He's expounding upon it. So we told you that Abraham was predestined. Isaac was called. Jacob was justified. And Joseph was glorified. I'm going to read to you out of Genesis 12. And then I'm going to hand out some other passages. Cody, why don't you get Genesis 17, verse 19 for me. Gabriel, get Genesis 35, 9 to 13. Adam, did you get Genesis 41, 40 through 45? Then Nick Aragina, if you'll get Genesis 50, 20 through 21. I'm going to pick up in Genesis 12 on the topic of Abraham predestined. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Saints, do you hear the repetition in God's language? I will, I will, I will. This passage is immediately following the table of nations and is God's plan for the dawn of civilization, if not the foundation of the entire world. Moses, reflect on the truth of this passage in Deuteronomy 32, verse 9. 
Listen to these words. For the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted inheritance. This is a deliberate contrast between this nation that he has chosen and every other nation that came before in the table of nations. Look, in your own time, please review the celestial powers teachings. But God is making it abundantly clear to the heavens and the earth that he has elected a nation and he will do certain things with them and it's not up for debate. In fact, the seven I will statements there have no conditions upon them of any kind. God doesn't say, if you will, I will. He simply says, I will. You know what that's called? Foreknown, predestined, their election. These are the very concepts that are so misunderstood in our time that we take them from the one nation on the planet and apply them to ourselves. And, and we're, we have to correct that or you cannot understand the word. Somebody say, I will. I will. When God says it, he means it. When you say it, you mean you hope to do it. He doesn't hope to do anything. When he says it, it's as good as done. We're just along for the ride to figure out how he will do it. Yeah. But he declares the end of a thing from its inception. When he says, I will, there's nothing that he doesn't know about it. He, he knows what it will take to do it, which is why Deuteronomy contains curses and blessings and says it's life and it's death. It even forecasts the time periods of judgment we're about to read about along with their restoration. The prophets must be taken in consideration of the entire canon of Scripture. Would you like to move on to Isaac? Yeah. Yeah. Genesis seventeen nineteen. Who's got it? I got it. Then God said, Yes, but your wife Sarah will bear you a son, and you will call him Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. Man, do you see the everlasting covenant? This was spoken before Isaac was even born. The situation in this passage is God speaking to Abraham about the promise, right? And Sarah overhears and she's like, man, could that really happen? And then God names Isaac by name, calls him out by name before he even exists, and speaks about an everlasting covenant for Isaac's descendants. That is what it means to be called out from the very beginning. Somehow or another, theologians have twisted this to say that now these blessings apply to you, and now the Bible means more because these blessings apply to you as Gentiles. I want to tell you when you do that, that robs the beauty of God's character, that robs the unchanging nature of his hope for fulfilling his promise. God called out Isaac even before he ever existed, and he spoke a plan that would be an everlasting covenant. That has not gone away. Look in... Genesis 35, 9 through 13, how Jacob was justified. After Jacob returned from Padan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. So he named him Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and a community a community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. 
The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will also give to you. And I will give you this land. I will give you this land and to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked with him. Look, this is uh, not the first time Jacob's name was changed. It was changed at Peniel. But many times God appeared to the man Jacob, affirmed his name as Israel, and affirmed that every promise given to Abraham was also his. Every promise given to Isaac was also his. Jacob is the father of the nation that the Lord predestined in Abraham, called forth through Isaac, and justified inside of Jacob, taking him from a deceiver to the prince with God, which in short is the story of Israel, and it was a mystery that you could be a part of that story. The next one is Joseph. We have Joseph glorified. Who has Genesis 41, 40 through 45? And this one's going to be two part, but pick up reading for me. pause here for just a minute, but think about the imagery here. We've been preaching, and much of the content that we've been going over has been coming out of the life of Joseph. We have a man that was enslaved and mistreated, that has risen to become equal with the highest power in the land. His adornment has changed. His interaction with the people of the land has changed. They're going to go on to describe in a Hebraic kind of way. His function with his name. Real quick, who wrote the book of Genesis? Moses. How did he write it? Was he there in a first-hand account chronicling it like somebody would write a newspaper? No. No, it was revealed to him. This doesn't mean that he had no knowledge of the prior history, but it does mean that God guided his hand in what would be included. Let me ask you, why would God want this included? Why not just say there was a famine and my people survived it? It's because it's prophetic in nature. It's painting a picture where you are informed by the past of what the future will be like. Otherwise, there's no reason to say anything other than, and my people had a rough time in Egypt, survived it, and it was all good. But the detail that is included here, you'll hear in the ministry of Jesus Christ. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I am Pharaoh, but without your word, no one will lift hand or foot in all Egypt. Pharaoh gave Joseph the name Zephaniah, and gave him Asenah, daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, to be his wife, and Joseph went throughout the land of Egypt. Zephaniah, Paneah, savior of the world. Look, considering that this work is inspired, as we just stated a moment ago, Joseph was rejected by his brothers but was chosen by God to typify a glorified Savior, one who was rejected by men, but chosen by God. Look, on this subject, we want to look at how the book of Genesis closes with Joseph and his brothers being reunited permanently 
foreshadowing an end of the age picture when God and his people are one. Can we ask you, when you hear this, do you hear in it the ministry of Jesus? But when you envision that, you envision the ministry of Jesus as it relates to you. Oh, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Jesus, uh, Jesus is like the king over all of Egypt and the Jews get to be included. But if you were reading this as the original audience, how would you have read it? A Jew is the king of the world and we will be permanently united with that Jew for all time. That's how you would read that. This is a consequence of approaching the book from the wrong end. We learned about Jesus and then read Jesus back into Joseph. Turn the picture around. What if you had no knowledge of Jesus and were looking at Joseph wondering how God would bring about the salvation of the Jewish nation? Does that make sense to you? Yes. All right. Let Judah lead you through Genesis 50. Genesis 50, verses 20 and 21. You intended to harm me. Pause there for just a moment. We cannot expound upon that as much as we would like this evening. You intended to harm me when you think about the events of the gospel and how the presentation of the son of David worked out in the vast majority of the nation. You intended to harm me, but the verse doesn't stop there. It's foreshadowing something that is to come. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. Almost as every tear was going to be wiped away in that the world had been made right. Listen, our focus right now is on Paul's foundation. Paul's foundation was in the Torah. We're beginning to reshape the way that we are reading Romans by looking at the right end of the funnel. Paul's foundation was the Torah, and the Torah's foundation is Genesis, the very beginning. When he writes that in all things God works for the good of those that love him in Romans 8 and are also called according to his purpose, these are the events that are the backdrop of his understanding. Something was intended that was for harm, but in it... God worked it for good in the saving of many lives. This is his upbringing. And when he is writing about the purposes and will of God, he is drawing on the Torah. When Paul goes on to say, and those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. He is reflecting on Abraham's predestination, Isaac's calling, Jacob's justification, and Joseph's glorification. For Paul, knowing Israel's history, informed him of Israel's future. That's not a difficult concept to understand, but it's one we must learn to utilize. Knowing what had happened in the past showed him what the pattern would be like in the future. They are, always have been, and always will be foreknown. Someone say foreknown. foreknown. Look, this is why Paul can go on to say in Romans 11, where Justin's going to pick up for me. Like I want to walk you through this because there, there are many questions about this passage. We've debated it many times. But with what you've just heard, I want to read this to you and see if we can get an understanding out of it. Romans eleven twenty six through 30. Paul speaking future tense. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. 
Now, many debates have, have come up in this church when we're at a house. What does that mean? Does it mean every Jew will be saved? Does it mean every generation of Jews? What does that mean? Take what we've just heard and, and know that that is the pattern Paul is thinking about when he's writing this. They were predestined like Abraham. They are called just like Isaac was. They are being justified just like Jacob was, and they will be glorified just like Joseph and his family was glorified in a generation. This is how it will play out in Paul's mind. And so all Israel will be saved, will be justified, will be glorified in that day when a glorious Savior, a Jew, is reigning over the earth. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. Now, if we just stop there, we can be like every other denomination and religion. We can be like the Catholic Church and rise up and say that they are enemies of the Gentiles. But what does Paul say after that? But as far as election is concerned... They are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. That doesn't mean God's gift and call to you is irrevocable. It means the one gift that he gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob can never be taken away. And they have an unconditional election. Unconditional election doesn't apply to the Baptists. It applies to Israel. Look, in the coming weeks... And months, you will begin to see that the book of Romans draws heavily on the book of Jeremiah. The language is unmistakable, and the truth underlying both books is that Israel has a destiny regardless of the impending judgment. That's going to be important for you to remember, because in the coming weeks, we're going to read verses where God says, I'm going to divorce you, Israel. But it doesn't mean the entire nation of Israel. It means that generation that has forsaken him. Every verse that people have misconstrued to mean that Gentile individuals are predestined is better understood to mean that Israel has a predetermined destiny that individuals play a part in. Simply put, nations have destinies and people have choices. Nations are on a track that God has set to fulfill their roles for his plan. Israel has a plan. Every Gentile nation has a part of God's plan. And I'm going to tell you, most of it is not good. People within those nations have choices. Consider Romans 9. So in this slide that we're summarizing a few characters from Romans 9, in the order that they appear in the text, we just want to make some observations for you because there's not a lot of good commentary on these verses. Okay? Romans 9, 7 says Abraham and Isaac are mentioned and it is through Isaac that the offspring will be reckoned. This is letting you know that although Abraham had more than one child through only one of his physical descendants would Israel's destiny be reached. Now you've been taught that that destiny is achieved in Messiah. Well, it will be achieved in Messiah. That's like saying the day that Joseph was born, that the destiny of Israel was achieved. No, no, it was begun. 
The destiny of Joseph was not achieved until he was actually reigning over the whole world and, and the nations had come to him for provision. So this is a misunderstanding. The next character to be mentioned in Romans 9 is Esau and Jacob. They're the heads of two nations. And at the prophecy over their birth, Mama is told two nations are in your womb. We act very often like Esau had a destiny that was bad. No, Esau had a choice. But the nation that was going to come from him would not be one that was favored in God's election, while the nation coming from Jacob would be favored in God's election. Israel is elect. Edom is not. It didn't mean that the man Esau couldn't be loved. It didn't mean that he couldn't do well. It didn't mean that Esau had no choice. It meant that the nation coming from him had a destiny to be in conflict with Israel. That is a huge misunderstanding in the body of Christ. Yeah, and it leads you down very dark roads, and it's all based on not understanding Israel's destiny. In Romans 9:17, there is another head of nation mentioned, and I put them in the same order. It's Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the head of Egypt. And Romans 9.17 makes the point that he was raised up for the purpose of displaying the election and salvation of Israel. Yeah. See, God worked in the lineage of the Pharaohs to make sure that Egypt as a nation fulfilled the role that Genesis 15 assigned them. Your people will be enslaved and mistreated in a land not their own, but afterwards I will bring them out with signs and wonders. That was a national destiny of Egypt. That did not mean that Pharaoh personally could not repent. It did not mean that every deed that Pharaoh did was prescribed beforehand. It meant that there was a national destiny as it relates to Israel's national destiny. God has got Israel on a track that cannot and will not be stopped. When you follow Paul's train of thought from Romans 8 to Romans 11, he's simply telling the story of Genesis. The Bible is centered on the story of Israel's destiny to be conformed to the image of the Son. Amen. Various nations are destined to oppose that salvation, and a few are mentioned as joining in support of Israel's salvation. But in the Bible, nations have destinies and people have choices. You can see this in the destiny of the Canaanite nation. It is declared by God in the scripture to be cursed. But the Syrophoenician woman escaped her national destiny through faith. Just like Rahab's town was destined to be destroyed, but Rahab escaped that destiny. Gog and Magog are predestined to attack Israel. But every individual in those nations will have a choice to reject that destiny or embrace it. No individual choice will keep the nation from doing what God said the nation would do, but it keeps that individual from having participated in it. 
Do you hear the beauty and complexity of God's plan? Yep. Lastly, because we need to move forward in the book of Jeremiah. We're at 51 minutes. <laughs> Jeremiah is going to bring into focus many of these topics. We want to just briefly touch on the concept of elect or election because it pains me to hear the things that are thrown around. Much confusion surrounds these terms, but they become very clear when you understand Israel's destiny. All right, saints, which end of the funnel do we start at? We start at the beginning of the book, and that helps us understand the end of it. Look, we want to throw a slide on the screen. This is from Chronicles, the writing of Ezra, that was translated into the Alexex. The seed of Israel, his servants. A way to think about that is the natural lineage, the seed of Israel. His servants, sons of Jacob, his chosen. Now, chosen is 1588. And I have another slide for you to show you what this word is. 1588, electos. There are two other variants beneath it, 1586, 1589. One who is elected, chosen, one who has been thoughtfully and deliberately considered and has been claimed. The idea here is that when God is referring to his people in Chronicles and it's being distributed to the world for their understanding in Greek, this is the word that he uses about the natural descendants of Israel, the sons of Jacob, his elect or chosen one. So before we go to the next slide, catch what Judah just did. The Hebrew word is chosen. The Greek word that replaces it. The same Greek Septuagint that is so often quoted in the Newer Testament. The word is not chosen. The word is elect or election. They are the elect people. See, when you start to plug that understanding into the Greek New Testament use of the word elect, not only does Calvin's argument fall apart, you find out that the 39 books of the Older Testament are telling the same story as the 27 books of the Newer Testament. There is one people on the planet that is elect. And it was a mystery that you could participate in what they are elect for. They were carefully chosen, with great consideration, a specific group of people. That's what the word means. And that's how Ezra wrote it. All right, you guys ready? Ready. ready. New Testament slide. So this is Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. The Strong's number here is 1586. And these are just a singular example of each of the Strong's numbers we gave you. For he chose, or for he Israel in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in advance with his pleasure and will. Saints, this is the same word that was in the previous passage about the sons of Jacob, Israel. So chose us or predestined us. Now, many of you that have been through ministry training We've worked through the pronoun switches in Ephesians to show you this. What we're now showing you is that the same word that refers to the chosen nature of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the word here. He chose us is the word electos, or in this case, elego. Now, that's important, don't you think? Yes, yeah. Because it refers to a specific people group 
that he chose with great care. And he's not done. Listen, this gets even more clear in 2 Timothy. Remember, Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended, a natural descendant of, one in the lineage from David. This is my gospel, for which I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of Israel, the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Saints, what did Paul say about making much of his ministry among the Gentiles? That it was intended to arouse jealousy within his people who had not accepted the gospel of Christ, the descendant of David. One of the things that we're hoping that you get from this is that when you read the word elect, chosen, or predestined, if you start at the correct end of the book, you would never assume that it's anybody other than an Israelite. And the point the author is usually making when he's 300 of the elect were saved that day is not 300 random people suddenly found out that they were ordained since the time began to be in Messiah. The point is is that God's purpose in election is working. Romans 11, which we read earlier. But consider it in light of the word that we're using here. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as Israel is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Look, as we get back into verse 6 of Jeremiah chapter 1, remember that the original promises, the ones that we just went through that apply to their descendants that Paul is commenting on, these promises made to the patriarchs cannot and will not be abrogated, amended, or altered. A later statement in the prophets is true, it is right, it is holy, and it applies to the generation that it was spoken about. Somebody say context. Context. To the generation it was spoken about, but in no way nullifies the original promise. Look, we have a slide that you may or may not be able to see, but we want you to have it and it will be in your notes. We have the Abrahamic, Mosaic, and Davidic promises. In summary, in Abraham's covenant, there are no conditions placed upon it, and it is one directional God saying, I will do this. The same in the Davidic covenant. And in the Mosaic covenant, there are promises with conditions or parameters for remaining in the land for any given generation. If you understand these three basic covenants of the word, it will change the way that you read any given passage and put you on firm grounding. As Justin takes us to the sixth verse, I just, I'm going to highlight this regularly. Paul is writing during a day exactly like Jeremiah. Jeremiah knows that the judgment of God is coming on the vast majority of the people and that a remnant, one from a hundred and two from a thousand, will survive it and will plant and build the nation again. Paul is writing under the same circumstances. He's seeing the majority of his nation stumble. Many people disregard them totally, but he knows for sure that a remnant from every generation will uh, build and plant the Israel of God that God always said he had foreknown and would save. Once you catch that parallel, you start to be able to tell the difference between this week's circumstances and the next few hundred years' circumstances 
And the prophet does that a lot. It's, it's kind of like you're spanking a child and he believes you're going to kill him. But you know that this spanking is going to result in his future benefit. It's not much different than that. And we need to have the perspective of the adult, not the child. Amen. That's Let's a good pick word. pick up in verse 6. Our sovereign Lord, I said, I do not know how to speak. I am only a child. Man, what a verse. God calling the prophet Jeremiah. Forget what you know about the rest of the book and focus in on this verse for a second. God's calling Jeremiah to a specific function for a specific uh, nation, a specific purpose. And his response, ah, sovereign Lord, I do not know how to speak. I'm only a child. Now, I, I, I don't know if this is false humility. I don't know if this is really what's going on. But I can imagine that Jeremiah is feeling, at the age of 20, the pressure that God is putting on him. Any of you have ever felt the pressure of God's promise upon you? Yeah. Yes. Come on, has anybody felt the pressure of the requirement of what God has called you to do? Yes. Man, for a 20-year-old, that's a lot of weight, isn't it? Yeah. He says, I do not know how to speak. Well, that's the one thing he's going to have to do is speak. I'm only a child. Look, I want to run through a couple scriptures with you, and we're going to, sh- we're going to hand these out. And we're going to see that this is, the, this is the norm for men that are called by God to nations, especially the nation of Israel. This is the norm when men feel the weight of God's purpose on their life. Is to kind of shirk back a little bit. I don't know if I'm up to the task. Lord, can you choose somebody else? Why are you choosing me? Let me just shortcut it and tell you you're not up to the task. But he makes you up to the task and that's the whole point. We want to begin back with Moses though. And we want to begin back with Moses because you're going to see clear patterns that have certain parallels to anything you're ever called to do. We want to start back with Moses because that's who Jeremiah had to look back at. So indulge us for a minute, and we're going to look at Moses' life. All right, who wants to read? Abambola, you get Exodus 3, 10 through 11. Paul Rosales, you're going to take Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Rob, you're going to get Exodus 4, 10. Glenn, you're going to take Exodus 4, 11 through 12. Clay, you're going to read Ezekiel 3, 14 through 15, and uh, Nick Rosales, you're going to take Isaiah 6, 3 through 8, and then we will go back into Jeremiah after that. All right, Exodus 3, 10 through 11. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? When God first speaks to Moses... When he first speaks with Moses about the privilege of being his instrument, Moses' first statements were about his own deficiencies. The God of the universe is speaking to him, telling him what he must do, and the first thing that comes out of his mouth is his own deficiencies. I know you've never been there, right? Never. The telling part of this whole dialogue is that Moses asked, Who am I? Who am I? Before he ever asked the question to God, Who are you? Who are you to send me? He asked, who am I, before he asked about God. Oddly, while staring at a visible representation of God. 
His own eyes are seeing what God is, a burning, consuming fire, and he asks about himself first. Man, that's a problem. Moses was more self-conscious at that point than God-conscious. The revelation of who God is, especially to you as an individual, is the beginning of being able to lead from a place of security and confidence. When God calls you to leave, the first thing that you must grasp is who is the one calling you? What is he able to do through you? What kind of God and power is he that he can call this into existence? It is the beginning of being able to lead from security and confidence. One of the reasons we love Jeremiah is the extent to which he became so God-conscious that there is no discernible self-consciousness left in him in the chapter. He is so wrapped up and totally consumed with what God wants that he has no thought for himself or any lack of security because God is with him. Part of our great love for Jeremiah comes with the revelation that it takes Moses an extended time period to get this right. It takes Jeremiah a few verses to get this right. And they both had awesome tasks. But when you consider some of what Jeremiah is going to have to say and do, uh, it looks to me like they could definitely have an argument over who had the harder job. Let's look at Exodus 3, 13 through 14. Then Moses asked God, If I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. Look, Moses' internal dialogue is starting to show here. And you have to love him for being humble enough to actually write it down for you. Because because he did. Uh, I mean, there's not a third party writing this. Moses is writing it. And, And he's letting you know. When God called me, I started to work through all these what-if scenarios. The irony is that the very site he was drawn to was beyond the natural realm. And now he's trying to assess how he can accomplish it within himself through natural means. Can I tell you, friends, we always come up short in that assessment. There's nobody who's up to that kind of task. The worst part is that this kind of insecurity either leads a man to be less transparent while he pretends to be self-reliant, trying to hide his fear, or to a kind of self-mortification so that he can convince others that he shouldn't be involved in the task, which is just one other way of trying to avoid the thing you're scared of. I'm sure that nobody in here can relate to those two ends of the spectrum. There is, of course, an answer. It's not about It's not about who you are or are not. It is about who God is. God's answer is strangely, oddly calming to us. His answer is I am who I am. Now we've talked many times on that phrase, but tonight as we contemplated it, it struck us somewhat differently. Yeah. If We trust the I am who I am, then we can trust that he chose us as individuals because we too are whatever we are. (laughs) And he still chose us. See, in Exodus 4, he goes on to reassure Moses. God gives Moses three signs, a staff and a snake. 
a hand that turns leprous, and water to blood. The Lord loved Moses, and he loves us. He's given us many signs of affirmation and approval through the years. Let's look at Moses' response together. Well, it's Exodus 4.10. Moses said to the Lord, O oh Lord, I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. Now, aren't you glad he gave you an answer to the problem earlier? Yes. Now, as a casual observer, it would be easy to get frustrated with Moses in this situation because he's been given the answer. He's been given signs. But the reality of the situation is that he's bringing up his own inadequacies because he's having trouble seeing the Lord through it. No matter how magnificent what is in front of him is, his own inadequacy is like a shield hiding it from him. But at least the man was honest. I've got to tell you frankly, what we're all working to put to death in our life and cannot exist is the silent insecurities that are poisoning your own well and making you a toxic pit that no one wants to be around while you pretend everything is okay. Moses is going to have his insecurities put to death. He's honest and he brings up these reasons and God gives him reassuring solutions to help him overcome his concerns, including adding a brother. A partner, a co-worker, one with different skill sets, not exactly the same, that complemented Moses' own skill sets. But listen, despite this, none of these things are actually the point. In fact, God was always going to help Moses, and Aaron was already on the way. That was there from the beginning. What the point actually was, was God wanted Moses to face his own fears and inadequacies and be persuaded that the I am who I am was enough. God did not want Moses to brush over them lightly or pretend they didn't exist. He wanted them to stare it in the face and realize that the one and only true God was enough anyway. Good thing that none of that is applicable to any of you in this room. And keep in mind, Moses was bringing good news. You're being set free from slavery. (laughs) Think about Jeremiah's news. We have great admiration for Jeremiah because his process is so much shorter than Moses and Moses was bringing good news. We also find personal application because when you think about what is coming upon this nation and the world, I put myself in Moses' level of inadequacies rather than Jeremiah's short-term process. (laughs) The truth is is that Jeremiah's personal walk with the Lord was epic from this moment forward. Let's go ahead and look at Exodus 4, 11 through 12. God encouraging Moses, get your eyes off your own deficiencies and look at me. Look at me. Now go. Do what you must do. Catch who I am and go. I will help you and will teach you what to say. Man, that's a good God, isn't it? Even while he's struggling, he's saying, look, 
I'm going to help you. It's going to be okay. Remember who's talking to you. This is the point, isn't it? You must daily depend on the Lord to help you. You can't focus on your own inadequacies and just wonder, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, and live in fear. The purpose is God is trying to get you to daily depend on him to help you, to be your easer. You're dependent on him to teach you along the way as you go. You're depending on him to be enough for you. And I'm going to tell you, that has to be enough for you. You can't want anything else. You can't say, well, I'm just so screwed up. This is never going to work. You're going to have to reconcile with the fact that God's character is enough for you. His helping you in whatever form that looks like in your life is enough for you. You have to do this in confidence, facing the fact that your body is as good as dead, and yet he who promised is faithful. This is the death of self-consciousness so that God's consciousness can reign inside of you. Amen. When you realize there, in me and my flesh there is no good thing. Yes. When you can honestly not just quote that scripture but just realize and say it honestly, in me and my flesh there's no good thing, then correction's not a problem. You're going, yeah, no, it's true. Yes. I suck as an individual yeah. and yet a great God has called me. Amen. I think that's why Paul can say, by the grace of God, I am what I am. Because yeah. he realized that. We see that Moses and Jeremiah had the same struggle, and they overcame. Notice something. If Moses had the same struggle as Jeremiah, then you might reconcile in your mind that this is the normative process for those who are called of God. Listen, there's one thing I want to pick up with you before we go to Ezekiel. What did Jeremiah have that Moses did not? He had Moses' example prior to doing it. And yet he still says almost exactly the same thing. Moses said, I never spoke well. Jeremiah said, I'm just a kid. Have you been blessed by the last few sermons? Not only would he have the testimony of the entire Tanakh in its completed form through the Brit Hadashah, but we have living examples of men who put themselves on display overcoming these things so that, like Jeremiah, we might make the quick turnaround tonight that we must. Who has Ezekiel 3? Uh, it's Ezekiel 3, and just read verses 14 and 15, Clay. Spirit then lifted me up and took me away. I went in bitterness and in anger of my spirit. It's good we don't see that anymore. <laughs> the strong hand of the Lord on me. I came to the exiles who lived at Tel Aviv near the Kabar River. And there where they were living, I sat among them for seven days. Yeah, some translations say overwhelmed. (laughs) Understand that the hand of the Lord was on Ezekiel, but he was still embittered. He was still angered. He was absolutely overwhelmed. And he still faithfully represented the Lord. You're going to find out that every prophet that was ever called had these kind of experiences. Now, we're trying to make personal application to you because we see that you also are having these experiences. And we want you to know that the Lord will be enough for you. It's, it's a, it should be a call to a greater dependency, not a, a, a proliferation of your excuses. All right, uh, let's do Isaiah 6 just to kind of round that out. 
And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a large hole in his hand, which he had taken with tongues from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom will go for us? And I said, Here I am. Mm. Okay, so there are a lot of things that could be said about this, and we, we have to get back to Jeremiah. But I'd like to point something out to you. Moses felt inadequate. And so God sent his brother and gave him four supernatural signs and all kind of things. And man, do I love Moses. And Moses does go. Moses does do all of those things after God cures all of those issues. (laughs) Ezekiel, he sits overwhelmed, angered, embittered, but he does represent the Lord. Of course, it's while he's angered, embittered, and, and overwhelmed. Isaiah He has the exact same encounter. He sees the holiness of God and he's like, but my lips are unclean. And after his lips are touched with a coal, then he's like, well, I'll go. (laughs) What is the only thing that Jeremiah was given? We've been emphasizing it since the very first verse of the first chapter. The Word of God. And he settles it inside of two verses. And then for 50 years stands on the most unpopular word any prophet has ever had to give. How can you not love Jeremiah? He didn't have an angel touch his mouth. He didn't have his brother show up and help him. He didn't have four supernatural signs right there. He had one thing only. The Word of God that came to it. And it fixed his problem. i got to tell you, you have the examples of those that went before you peers who are around you, but you've had a complete copy of the Word of God since before you were born. That ought to fix our problems. Amen. Amen. We need to get it in our mouths. We need to get it down into our souls. You need to get it to come out of your mouth. I love Jeremiah, and the more I study him, the more he stands out to me among all the men in the Bible as one of the tallest. Brother Linton, let's get verse 7. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am only a child. You must go to everyone I send you to and say whatever I command you. Look, i got to say, we're advantaged in every way. The Lord's response to him was not an explanation. It was not consoling. He said, Do not say that. And then we move on to what he must do. You must go to everyone I send you and say whatever I command you. Listen, doesn't this beg the question, what are you going to have me say? Because that was not explained either. He just said, don't say that. Say what I tell you to say. Look, we have a slide for you that is going to give you a few ideas about the conversations or prophecies Jeremiah is going to be given. Everybody say, say what? (laughs) If you've ever been asked by your spouse, Look, I just, I need you to agree with me and you don't know what the question was. That's where Jeremiah is at right now. (laughs) Jeremiah has got to say, yes, I'll go say whatever you tell me to say. And he doesn't know what it is going to be. 
a few things the Lord is going to tell him to say. You lay down as a prostitute under every tree. That's in Jeremiah 2. He's told to go prophesy this. You are a wild donkey, a she-camel sniffing the wind in your craving. Jeremiah 2, still in the second chapter. Is there any place that you have not been ravished? Jeremiah 3. Wow, this is going well. He's off to a great start. (laughs) You are a well-fed, lusty stallion named for another's wife. Jeremiah 5. I'm sure that word was well received. (laughs) Your wives will be given to other men because of your own impropriety and actions. That's Jeremiah 8. I bet they loved him for that one. Your dead bodies will lie like dung in the open fields. Jeremiah 9. God says he will pull up your skirts over your face that your shame may be seen by all. Jeremiah 13. Can you imagine having to go to the churches in this area? There's like five of them on Belknap. Stand up publicly and say these things. You're a camel sniffing the air, looking for love. Jeremiah had to commit. I'm talking about commit, people. Somebody say commit. Commit. To represent the Lord without knowing exactly what he would have to say, but it didn't matter. Next time one of you feels like you're a prophet called to the nations, you should review these slides. (laughs) We know what he's going to have to say, but he did not know what he was going to have to say. Which makes the very next verse that much more menacing, that much more intimidating. Read it for us, Linton. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you, and I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Oh, yeah, Lord, I'm going to say everything you want me to say. Rescue me? Wait. I will rescue you, declares the Lord. Rescue from what? Isn't that the most obvious question? What is going to happen to me? Can you imagine the Lord saying that to you in your calling? I will rescue you. You know, we all think of that like, oh, you're going to rescue me from all the people at my job. You're going to rescue me from my financial troubles. You're going to rescue me Isn't from that my, sweet. my feelings of doubt and darkness. I want to show you what Jeremiah was rescued from. His hometown tried to kill him in Jeremiah 11. The town where he was born rose up and tried to kill him. His father and his brothers dealt treacherously with him. And Jeremiah 12, priests, prophets, and people tried to kill him again. In Jeremiah 26. I actually mistyped the slide. It's priests, prophets, and all the people. (laughs) In Jeremiah 36, he was banned from going to the house of the Lord. Banned. Banned. Can't can't come here anymore. Don't, Don't enter the church again. We don't like what you had to say about our skirts. He was put in stocks in Jeremiah 20. He was beaten and placed in a prison dungeon in Jeremiah 37. He was accused of seeking harm of the people in Jeremiah 38. Man, you can see so many similarities between Paul and his sufferings and Jeremiah. We ran out of room on the slide. That's not all of them. We just had to pick a few. No, I asked the brothers, hey, give me some of the events of Jeremiah's life. I'm trying to throw them into a slide. They sent me so many that I couldn't fit them in a slide, and I said, we'll just give them a representative taste. I don't want to scare them away from the book. 
Charlie and I were discussing this on one of our 24-hour road trips, you know. And uh, I was trying to picture Charlie and Joe, which are kind of, to me, the epitome of poise and grace within the church. And so often have a right word at the right time. But I never could picture Charlie telling somebody, you're like a camel wanting to hump everything and sniffing the air all around you. And if he did say it, I can't imagine that anybody would accept that it was God, that, that, that he was accurately representing him. Jeremiah has a difficult task, and the people don't receive it well. He's not coming saying, look, the Lord's heard your groaning, and, and, and he's here to reach down and raise you up. He's not saying that. He's saying, although you're elect, and although the nation still has a destiny, because of your whoredom, most of you are going to die. And the only way that you survive this is agree with God and submit to the spanking. That's, that's essentially his message. Look, the point is, Jeremiah stands taller than any prophet because his answer was yes before he knew the answer. Yeah. His answer was yes before he knew what he was called to do, and that must be your answer as well. When God commands you to do something, even before you know what it is, your answer has to always be yes. Otherwise, you can miss your calling. He'll go find a yes man somewhere else. All right, let's pick up in verse 9 and go to 10. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth and said, and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. See, today I appoint you over nations and kingdoms to uproot and tear down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. Now, you, uh, you've probably heard us preach about this before, and so I'm going to do it in summary form because there are some things I'm dying to get to and we have 25 minutes left. There are seven facets to Jeremiah's call. Number one, he's appointed, and that from birth. But he has to awaken to it. Number two, He's going to have to uproot things. Number three, he's going to have to tear down things. Number four, he's going to have to destroy things so that they never rise again. Number five, he'll have to overthrow things that are existing and empower. But listen to number six and seven because they're usually missed. He'll also build and he'll also plant. These things are all aimed at Israel. Notice that they ultimately end in building and planting. Most people seem to read the book, of Je- the book of Jeremiah and miss what they arrive at, building and planting. They start with uprooting and tearing down and destroying and overthrowing, but they arrive at building and planting. You don't build and plant something that doesn't have a future. The whole point is there's still a future. Five parts of this prophecy are corrective and two parts are restorative. Yeah. And that's, that's a pretty good formula for the book of Jeremiah. Mm-hmm. And it's also a good formula for the book of Romans. All right? I love that everybody says it's a theological masterpiece and then the theologians don't understand it. Look, there are seven facets that also apply to your life. We put them on a slide for you just so you could make practical application. You also were appointed, and you were appointed by the word that you received. You also have to uproot things that don't belong in your life. You have to tear down lies that have been spoken to you by the enemy. You have to destroy the devil's work in your own life. You have to overthrow the devil's throne 
in your own life. And if we stop there, all you hear is that you suck, which is what people say about Israel. But we're missing something. All five of those things are done so that you can build the kingdom. Come on. And number seven, you can plant the same kind of restorative word in others. Hallelujah. So most of the Bible is about correcting, teaching, and rebuking. But the point of the Bible is about being trained in righteousness. Amen. And to overemphasize the first five and ignore the last two is to miss the point of the Bible. And it shows up in the walk of Christians when your walk is based on not doing this and not doing that and keeping this rule and observing that rule. The whole point is about what you do. And do for others and do in others. It is not about what you don't do. Amen. The don't do portion is so that they can be eliminated from your life and you can get on to the what you should be doing portion. That's a good yeah. word. Christians that manage their sin their entire lives never do anything for God. It's a very selfish existence and it produces terrible disciples. They all fall away. Christians that can move on to item six and seven have long, fruitful lives. And they're not managing sin. It's becoming a decreasing part of their life, period. And that's really what we're after. Let's pick up in verse 11. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, I replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly. For I'm watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Look, I think at this point, for the sake of time, we're not going to discuss the visual and audible nature of the Word of God in the Bible. But we do want to suggest that you're fully capable Bible scholars in your own right, and that it would be worth your time studying it. Some of the most profound experiences in the Bible are men who both saw and heard the Word of God. Genesis 15 with Abraham is a good example of that. In the Bible, the Word has actual substance. The word speaks, appears, arrives, it shields, it stands, it is placed, it runs, it heals, it makes clean. Then all comes into play when John says the word became flesh in the embodiment of Jesus. Look, we're we're gonna move on here. But if you don't grasp that difference, then you'll be in trouble again for the whole rest of the Bible. To us, the word is simply an expression of a thought. Oh, I could have chosen a different word. Or our our words are used carelessly. In the Bible, word is not just personified as a literary device. In a spiritual and a physical sense, the word is seen as standing. It can be placed, uh, for instance, in Jeremiah's mouth. The word in the Bible is seen as running. It's seen as healing. Making clean. It's not just the transfer of a thought. The word has real substance. In Aramaic, that's called memra. And we don't have time to teach that now. But when John says the word became flesh, he's not saying the word became alive. The word was always alive. He's saying that the word became indwelt in a tabernacle. The thing that has always been acting in this way, always been the creative force in the universe was suddenly present in a way we could see, touch, feel. And that's why it goes on to write, we beheld him. We touched him with our hands. We considered him carefully. That is the way a Hebrew thinks about the word. 
Now, considering it's 9.02, we better go ahead and get into the almond tree where we want to spend a, at least enough time to help you understand the Hebrew poetic imagery. Brother Linton, if you read verse 11 and 12 for us. The word of the Lord came to me. What do you see, Jeremiah? I see the branch of an almond tree, he replied. The Lord said to me, you have seen correctly, for I am watching to see that my word is fulfilled. Now, many have read this passage and wondered what is going on there. I mean, at the start of Jeremiah's career, God's saying, hey, what do you see? And some of us have thought, well, you know, maybe God's trying to dial in Jer- Jeremiah's vision or something like that. But that yeah, he's kind of the odd. optometrist. One or two. <laughs> yeah. Two or three. It's not that. Well, what kind of tree is that, Jeremiah? No. This particular interaction is permeated with Hebrew imagery and wordplay. When we told you that Hebrew prophets were like spiritual artists, this is a prime example, and I want to show you that. As he gets into the first level of this, this is why we spent so much time talking about Hebrews being, the prophets being like spiritual artists. When Joshua, sitting here on the front row, walks up and looks at a painting by Monet, he's like, cool, it's pretty. (laughs) But as you mature and you get older, you start to appreciate the use of colors, what is being conveyed in emotion. This is one of those passages that the more levels you look at it in, not as a technical manual, but as the imagery that is being evoked, it starts to have deeper and deeper meaning. And I think it's prettier than anything that Monet uh, painted. So the first level of this almond tree is the word play. And this is easiest to understand. There's a footnote in your Bible, and we have a slide for you. So the word, uh, it doesn't show the Hebrew characters here, but I'll tell them to you. The word for almond is shaked. It has a shin, a kof, and a dalit. It is used in word play by Jeremiah. And uh, in, this de- in this dictionary, complete word study, it also says to watch over. Oh, the next word, 8245, which comes from the same root, is shakad. Same Hebrew letters, a shin, a kof, and a dalit. And it's a verb meaning to watch, to guard. God says, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I see, in Hebrew, the rod of a shaked. And God's about to respond with, very well, because I am shakad over my word. Do you hear some wordplay there? It's it's not just wordplay for entertainment. It evokes certain feelings in the person. It's not just that he's seeing an almond and an almond... Uh, sounds similar to watching, it's that when he sees the almond, he's now aware that in some way God is watching very carefully over this nation. Yeah. Yeah. And it is also proof that God speaks Hebrew very well. Yeah. (laughs) So the implication is that God watches over his word to see that it is fulfilled, whether consequence or reward, and God is using to Jeremiah the almond tree to show that imagery. Now, there are some aspects of this word shakad, and I want to to show them to you. There is a negative aspect of this found later in Jeremiah's writings, in Jeremiah 44, verse 27. God is saying, for I am shakad, I am watching over them for harm. Man, that's not a good word, is it? He's saying, I am shakad over them for harm, not for good, 
the Jews in Egypt will perish by the sword and famine until they are all destroyed. God is watching to see that his word of judgment that he is speaking to the nation is going to come to pass. Now, imagine that you are reading this in the original language for a second. We can only do this so long, but I, I, I don't want to f- fly through it and you nod yes and miss the point. They're reading the consonants only, which means when they come to the word, they have to choose by context. Are we talking about watching or are we talking about an almond? Which means by its very nature, you have to consider both. Does that make sense to you? How would you rather read it? (laughs) I would rather read it as from an almond over them. (laughs) But, but, But context makes clear that's not what's being said. And you would have to consider both. On the note of considering both, did we hand out Jeremiah? No, we didn't. We'll read it. There's a positive aspect of this found in Jeremiah 31. So you see that there's a negative aspect of God watching, and there's also a positive. It says in verse 28, Just as I watched over them to uproot and to tear down, and to overthrow, destroy, and bring disaster, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, people will no longer say, The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. So this happens to be the same chapter that the newer covenant is in. And I would love to teach on the comparisons for you, but we're not. Instead, I'm just going to hint at them for you, and you have 31 chapters to wait until we get there. (laughs) God is watching over. He did uh, tune Jeremiah into an almond, and we're just at the first level of meaning with it. But he also, in the 31st chapter, restates Jeremiah's call and says, I am watching over to make sure that the aspects of your call, five of them have to do with judgment and two of them have to do with Israel's restoration. And then he says, it will no longer be true. The proverb, my father ate sour sour grapes and my teeth are set on edge. That is for Israel. In other words... He's come to a place in his revelation where God is not just emphasizing to him, I'm watching for judgment. He's saying, I'm also watching over the nation for the rest of your calling to build and to plant. And that is the context of the new covenant. Consider the absurdity of taking that away from them and applying it to someone else. Listen, let's get into the LXX with Jeremiah 1.12. We love the LXX because it's essentially Hebrew thought for dumb Gentiles. Yeah, it's like, yeah. When a Hebrew sees the word almond and they wanted to convey it to people like us, they use the word diligent. The idea is that when a Hebrew sees an almond, it brings to mind the imagery of a God who's not only watching, like standing from a distance, just watching something happen, but one who is standing guard, ready to act like a sentry or a soldier. Now, we're not going to continue to rep through this, but this is not a perfect example, but it's something akin to you seeing an American flag and it calling to mind things like Fourth of July or a specific song. 
the imagery here is one that is not just of witnessing, but tells the Hebrew reader immediately this is a kind of watching that is with the intention to act and ensure that his word is brought about. Now the next association with the omen that is necessary to understand, the larger picture being conveyed, because there are multiple components to it, is the association with both affirmation and impending judgment all in the exact same produce. Wow. So let's, let's say that together. Affirmation, affirmation. And, judgment. and judgment. Both are present at all times in Jeremiah. And we want to show you the very first things that we think are most likely to have come to Jeremiah's mind, who is a priest. Would you be interested to know that the almond has these similar themes throughout the Tanakh? Yeah. I'm going to hand out a few passages. We're going to dig into that. Hayes, you get numbers 17, 8 through 10. Marlon, you get Exodus 25, 34 through 37. JJ, you get Luke 3, 16 through 17. And uh, Nick Rosales, you're going to read Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 5. Number 17, when you got it. Number 17, 8 through 10. The next day Moses entered the tent of the testimony and saw that Aaron's staff, which represented the house of Levi, had not only sprouted, but had budded, blossomed, and produced almonds. Produced what? Almonds. Almonds. Keep going. Then Moses brought out all the staffs from the Lord's presence to all the Israelites. They looked at them, and each man took his own staff. The Lord said to Moses, put back Aaron's staff in front of testimony to be kept as a sign to the rebellious. This will put an end to the grumbling against me so that they will not die. Now this budding staff was supposed to be kept as a what? Sign. A sign to the who? Rebellious. To the rebellious. And then he says this, when they see this staff, it will put an end to their grumbling against me so that they will not die. Now notice something about this passage. This is in the Torah. At the very beginning of God's word. And this is the first priest ever in God's nation. And he was affirmed by the presence of an almond bud. There is a rebellion going on. They're speaking out and God says, hey, take your staff and see what happens. And it buds and produces almond. This was affirmation to the first priest. But at the same time, the almond bud was kept as a sign for the rebellious in future generations to be warned about transgressing as Korah was doing at that time. So the omen, the very first instance in the Bible, it was affirmation to the priests, those who were doing right with God, and is also a sign to the rebellious that judgment was coming like it did to Korah. To understand those layers, it also means that God was watching the situation to affirm the righteous elements within Israel and strain out the unrighteous elements so that they would reach their national destiny. Now remember, Jeremiah is a prophet, but he's also a priest. Jeremiah is being affirmed as a prophet and a priest, just as Aaron, his forefather, had been. And at the same time, it is a dual reference to the impending judgment of the Korah-like factions in Jeremiah's day. And it's also a sign of affirmation to Jeremiah himself. So catch this. These layers start to build together. 
when he sees an almond, it, it might be, you're, you're watching, watch, watching for what? Is it, is it judgment or is it negative? I mean, is it judgment negative or is it restoration positive? Because there's a vigilant watching over your word. Which side of it are we on? Does that make sense? But it's also an affirming to him because the first priest in the nation, this is how his office was established and proven to be right. So when you read this in English, you're kind of like, okay, you got an incredibly hard task. Okay, you think you can't do it. Uh, The pastor's just told us it's going to involve a lot of hard speech and you're going to be treated badly. So what on earth was affirming about an almond branch? But when you put it in its Hebrew context, all of a sudden it starts to take on deeper implications. And they go more so than that. By the way, in Hebrew it doesn't say the branch of an almond tree. It says the rod of an almond. The same words used in number 17. The same word for when Moses uh, needed encouragement and God said, what's that in your hand? And he said, a staff. He said, throw it down, pick it up. Same thing. They were both encouraged through a staff, but the priest out of the two was encouraged with a staff with almonds on it. Okay, let's read Exodus 25. This one might feel a little deeper to you, and I'll do my best to make it clear. Uh, 34 through 37. I wonder if you can put these elements together. It has to do with watching diligently over a situation. It has to do with both judgment and restoration or life. And what object are we now describing? The menorah, which is the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is both affirmation for the one doing right and it's impending judgment for the one doing wrong. You're very excited. When you're on the right side of God and His Spirit shows up to empower you, encourage you, and affirm you, you are not very excited if you're Ananias and Sapphira and the Spirit of God has filled the room. In some ways, the almond from Numbers to Exodus can be seen as both resurrection and death, depending on how you relate to what God is doing in your time. So when this... Almond shows up for him on a staff. I'm sure he feels affirmed. But remember, there's a second word that's also given to it. We'll get to that in a minute. It's not the only thing that he saw. Truth, this truth carries over in the words of John the Immerser when he's speaking about Jesus. Okay? These these concepts don't go away in the Newer Testament. Because we switch languages doesn't mean that we switch cultures. uh, Did somebody have Luke 3, 16 through 18? No, uh, yes. John answered them all, I baptize you with the water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. 
He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, most Christians never catch this. But you don't want both baptisms. Mm -mm. There's two that you can have. Just like the Word is life and death, the almond could be judgment or it could be restoration. Something is impending. Which do you want? Well, you want the baptism in the Spirit, not judgment by fire. The 17th verse makes this unequivocally clear, and yet the body of Christ still puts this as slogans for youth groups because they don't understand it. Yeah. It's one way for is in his hand to clear his threshing floor there we go. and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Do you catch that? Yeah. The Spirit is an instrument of division. He will baptize those in His Spirit who want to do right and are committed to doing right, or He will baptize them in fire, burning them up like chaff. But you do not get baptized in the Spirit and fire. The, the point is, is that there's two of them, and the Spirit itself, His self, is an instrument of division. The, the emblem of the Spirit in the tabernacle and the temple is covered in almonds for a reason. Yeah. God is watching diligently over His Spirit and His Word to put everybody in their appropriate category based on how they relate to Him. His purpose in election will stand. Now, when you have a free moment, because we don't have that much time left, buy Nick Aragina a cup of coffee and get him to work through the Paleo-Hebrew for a menorah. It is astounding the levels at which these pictures are being painted. Mm -hmm. For now, we want to keep moving by simply acknowledging that Jeremiah, much like John 3:16 through 17, where the world stands condemned unless they receive what God is doing, Jeremiah is in a position where Israel must accept the judgments of God to be saved through them and arrive at their destiny. And just by the imagery that God's conveying, these stories are rushing to his mind. It's also why it's important that God promised him he would protect him. So real quick and recap as we pick up with the agricultural implications of the almond. When Jeremiah saw an almond, it spoke to him about watching with the intention to cause something to succeed. In addition to that, it was about the affirmation of those who stood with the Lord and a sign to the rebellious who would not stand with the Lord. That it was associated with the Spirit of God in his mind that was life and empowerment for those that were standing with God, and it was burning fire and destruction for those who were not. In every case, it's negative for someone. The question is, what is your relationship to the sign that has been given? Let's get Ecclesiastes 12, 1 through 5, and I'm going to interrupt you after you read the first verse. Remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come and the years approach when you will say, I find no pleasure in them. So the context here, before we get to the following passages, remember your creator in the days of your youth, before the days of trouble come upon you, before those events have taken place. Now let's keep reading, and towards the end of the passage it will be completed. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars grow dark, and the clouds return after the rain, when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those looking through the windows grow dim, when the doors to the street are closed and the sound of grinding fades, 
When people rise up at the sound of birds, but all their songs grow faint. When people are afraid of heights and of dangers in the streets, when the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper drags itself along and desire no longer is stirred, then people go to their eternal home and mourners go about the streets. So I want you to consider that this is a writing of Solomon long, long before this. In fact, we covered this time period in Chronicles where the man studied agriculture, where he studied the world around. The almond blossom, because of its placement in the agricultural cycle, was seen as an indicator, a precursor, a sign of sudden change in season. That we've just hit a new window and something is about to happen. It carried a kind of urgency or hastening to the moving of the seasons. One of the implications in Jeremiah's vision is that the judgment is now upon them. It's not out in the distance like when Isaiah prophesied when Hezekiah was reigning. He's prophesying and seeing this almond and it is now upon them with a sudden urgency. It communicated that haste had been put in place. The idea here is that it's imminent. I want to show you a slide that is commentary from Rashi about it. You have seen well the almond tree hastens to blossom before all other trees. Generally, it's in January or February that it's coming to bloom. I too hasten to perform my word. And the midrash and the agata, an almond tree takes 21 days from its blossoming until it is completely ripe. As the number of days between the 7th of Tammuz, when the city was broken into, until the 9th of Av, when the temple was burnt. Look, if the following the almond tree experience was about restoration, it would be indicating that it was coming quickly. The judgment would be coming on the enemies. Then the almond blossoms might have engendered feelings of quick restoration or near urgent salvation that was coming. But that's not what the next word was about. Jeremiah is getting a picture of someone who is watching with an intention to act, that it is affirmation to him but a sign to the rebellious that the Spirit of God is going to be poured out and fill some and burn others, and that it is going to happen now. Once an almond tree begins to blossom, it's only 21 days, not even a month, before it is fully cured. That is what God is communicating. The rabbis notice the connection between the quick changing of seasons and the boiling pot in the north. The almond blossom has become ominous because of the connection between the two signs that he's about to see. You have to catch that he must have been on the edge of his seat when he saw the almond blossom. Yeah. It's like, you're about to do something. You're watching, you're watching over this. You're, you're vigilant. This is, this is exciting, Lord. Is it for restoration or is it for judgment? And then he sees the second vision. Now, see, that's a little different experience with this word, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Okay, well, we wanted you to have that experience. Let's pick up in verse 13 and see the next thing that he saw. The word of the Lord came to me again. What do you see? I see a boiling pot tilting away from the north. I answered. The Lord said to me, From the north, disaster is about to be poured out on all who live in the land. I am about to summon all the peoples of the northern kingdoms, declares the Lord. Their kings will come and set up their thrones in the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. They will come against all her surrounding walls and against all the towns of Judah. Now, time will not permit us to go into any detail about the kings, plural, that would set up their thrones in the entrance of Jerusalem. But it's safe to say that Jeremiah, seeing these two visions connected, was a very bad thing. He's seeing those 
visions and he's knowing God's telling him that judgment is coming. We, we want to suggest, though, that the unified theme in the prophets describe a repeating pattern of northern kings being the end time enemy of Israel. Because it patterns the same thing that happened yes. in Jeremiah. He's seeing a boiling pot tilting towards the south from the north. It's coming from the north, tilting south where they are. And it is a pattern that repeats in prophetic works. Now, remember what we shared last week about the geography of Israel? This is why we shared that, so you can understand what is about to happen. From the north, doesn't mean directly north. They have to come from the north, though. They're going to bring judgment against Israel. And you may even, in the prophetic cycle, in the book of Daniel, you might even find a ten-nation coalition coming from the north as well. Now, as exciting as those end times prophecies are, don't detach it from Jeremiah's actual experience. The Lord brings an incredible impact to Jeremiah so that he can transfer that impact to the nation. A certain excitement because there's a vigilance in God watching over his word. And his word is both life and death. A certain association with the priesthood that had always been affirmed in their ancestry in this way and carried it around as a sign. A certain association with the Spirit of God that brings life to some but will burn others with unquenchable fire. And he must have been thinking, which is it, Lord? Which do I get to announce? And he probably had some inclination because of all the prophets around him and what they've been saying. Hosea's work that came before him. But he also had to be hoping that it was not yet. That surely there would be one more revival. Do you know where you're going to experience this? You're going to experience this every time you're talking to somebody about the certain judgment coming on this nation and they're telling you that there's going to be one more great revival and they're proud to be Americans with Lee Greenwood and and God bless America. Because nobody wants to hear this kind of word. But it's a necessary word. Things have to be uprooted. They have to be torn down. They have to be destroyed. Those kind of, they have to be dethroned so that something can be built and planted in accordance with God's plan. Now, I'm applying that to us. This book is not about us. This book is about Israel who has a national destiny of salvation and God is working in all things for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. And he will bring them to that end. The terrible irony in all of this is that we've applied that verse to us and we believe it through our darkest hours, but do not apply it to Israel during their darkest hours. We're going to continue. We're we're at an hour and 58 minutes and we, we want to finish this. But I'd like you to just appreciate for a moment that Jeremiah was on the edge of his seat, so to speak, to borrow an aphorism, and then when he gets the second vision, his stomach must have hit uh, the bottom of his spine, realizing what his life's work would be. Okay? Uh, Let's pick up in verse 16. I will pronounce my judgments on my people because of their wickedness in forsaking me, in burning incense to other gods, and in worshiping what their hands have made. Okay. Now, Now, the picture's been painted and God is saying it clearly. He, this was his intention from the beginning. 
but he just walked Jeremiah through an incredibly emotional experience that impacted his soul because for the next 50 years, Jeremiah would have to remain true to that experience. Why do you go through some of the things that you go through? Well, you're supposed to be wrestling with the Word and its impact on you daily so that when you are speaking with someone, you are not just tritely quoting four spiritual laws like some kind of monkey. It's supposed to be your own wrestling, Mm -hmm. your own impact that the Word has had on you. And much of the reason that our witness is so devoid of power if we've not actually gone through these experiences. You're quoting someone else's experience. You're talking about a sermon somewhere that you heard. Jeremiah walked through this in the presence of God. The hope for something good, realizing that it was actually a sign of judgment that couldn't be avoided. And the knowledge that eventually Israel would arrive at building and planting. But that was not this season. Mm -hmm. Now, if you had to agonize about that, let's just say over your adult children or over your family members, would you be tritely telling them, well, all you have to do is just believe in Jesus? See, this is why Christianity is mocked everywhere. Most Christian lives are flatly laughable. But if you actually are being impacted by the Word and the Spirit of God, it's not laughable. It's living and active and entirely powerful. It's not that some men are better speakers than others. It's none of those things. It's that some men are actually being impacted by the presence of God and others are just talking about it. We want you to engage with the text because when you do, the text will engage with you. And if you have children in your home that just don't get very much out of it, it's because you're not getting very much out of it. You are quoting to them rules and defining life by what we don't do. That has never worked. It's ridiculous. It's unbiblical. Wrestle with the text. Engage with something like Exodus 4, embracing the difference between what God's called you to do and your own inadequacy. Watch God become enough for you and then go speak to your children and it will have an impact on them. Okay? But if you don't do those kind of things, then of course the Word will not have an impact on people and it's not the fault of the Word. It's your failure to engage with it. We like that Micah 3.8 says, But as for me, I am filled with power and the Spirit of God to declare to Jacob his unrighteousness. But knowing what you know about Hebrew prophets now, the only way Micah can say that and paint that picture is God has already dealt with Micah about his unrighteousness. He's already dealt with Micah about this. That's true of every real... The idea that we have a Christian witness class is ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want to tell you what it reminds me of because it would sound like I was quoting some of those funny sayings from Jeremiah. It's like virtual Christianity, okay? If you actually engage the text, the text will engage you and you will have a profound impact on the world around you. This is when you look back and realize there's never a place you've lived, never a place you've worked, Never any setting that you lived in for any length of time when people were not transformed based on what God is doing in you. And that's what the Christian life is supposed to look like. 
And it is what Jeremiah's life looks like. It's not all failure. Where did Baruch come from? Yeah. Okay, it, it's not all failure. Let's go ahead and pick up in verse 17. Get yourself ready. Come on, man. Stand up. Oh, come on. Come on. Do not be terrified by them, for I will terrify you before them. Today I have made you a fortified city, an iron pillar, a bronze wall to stand against the whole land, against the kings of Judah, its officials, its priests, and the people of the land. They will fight against you, but they will not overcome you. For I am with you and will rescue you, declares the Lord. It's a good thing he promised he would rapture him, right? (laughs) Jeremiah, who are you going to have to fight against? Everyone. Everyone except me and I will be with you. Saints, I want to suggest to you that this is the expectation adjustment that we've been needing for quite some time. The fact that we are sitting with brothers on our left and right is an advantage that was never promised and not given to all men. But we have the same charge that is before us. Jeremiah was not given allowances for the fact that he was by himself or that he felt inadequate or that there were kings, priests, prophets, officials, the people, all against him. In fact, you heard earlier that even his own household committed treachery against him. Now's the time that we interact with the word that we need, where the word actually sinks into us in a way where it cannot be broken, where it becomes indestructible. I want to tell you flatly, someone else praying for you or crying at an altar will not do that. Reviewing what God has spoken to you because he has put his word in your mouth. I know you. You have mezuzahs. You have moments where the Lord interacted with you and said, you will do this. Now's our time to gain our strength in the Lord and in the word that he has placed in us. It's time to be the fortified cities that are mobile anywhere that we are at, anywhere that he sends us, anything that he tells us to speak, his word becomes like a fortified city in you when you have internalized it to the point where it defines your character and who you are. I want you to capture a little bit of the emotion that Jeremiah might have had. Can you imagine God told you that the city you lived in would be completely destroyed? The places that you like to go to, dates with your wife, completely destroyed. Foreigners, coming into your city and setting up their thrones. Can you imagine if God said that about Houston, Texas right now? That everything that you so love and enjoy will be decimated because of the wickedness. The people, the places, the land, everything. Not just Houston in this instance, it's Jerusalem, the beloved city, the city in which God's name dwells. The beautiful city that the psalmists write about. Can you imagine what Jeremiah must have felt in that instance? Completely crushed. This is my city and foreigners are going to come invade it? What's the next thing he tells him? I will make you a fortified city. Your city that you live in will be crushed, but I'm going to make you a fortified city that will stand up against them. What you see around you will be destroyed, but what I put inside you will be so fortified that they will not be able to overcome you. Man, 
God, that is happening all around us. God is bringing judgment. If you felt the judgment of God in your life, you can sense that it's coming all around you. But you also know that God is building a fortified city right here as we stand shoulder to shoulder. As we stand on the word of God and commit to saying whatever he tells us to say. He's building that here right now. And he is making it in such a way that every family will say what they're supposed to say. And that we will not be overtaken or destroyed as everything around us is destroyed. If we could put verse 17 back on the screen. We're at two hours and seven minutes and that's about my limit. I'm, I'm old and weak now. I want to suggest that we have at least two imperatives to close on. The first is get yourself ready. God never does anything without announcing it to his servants, the prophets. So that you will get yourself ready. You knew that there was a war coming. You probably would not sit around playing Monopoly. Get yourself ready. The second is, stand up. Amen. Would you stand to your feet? Now, we don't just stand to stand up. He said, get yourself ready and stand up and say to them whatever I command. The getting yourself ready is knowing what God says. The getting yourself ready is getting into relationship with Him where you know what impact He wants to have on the world around you because it's already happened in you. The standing up is the proclaiming to everybody else what He's already doing in you. Get ready and stand up. Judgment can't be averted. But we can raise up a generation that will survive it and cause the election of God in the nation of Israel to come to fulfillment. You will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man returns. That phrase ought to be taking on a whole new meaning to you. It was the days of Jeremiah. Judgment would have to happen before restoration. Let's begin to pray. Father, we thank you. Your word is rich. Your word is clear. We have failed to engage your word in meaningful ways. We have failed to be impacted by the preaching of your prophets. And it's our fault. Circumcise our hearts, mighty God, that we would feel again. Lord, Move through us that our inadequacies would not hold us back any longer. Lord, move upon us to get ourselves ready because we want to stand up for you in this time. In the name of Jesus, we say so be it unto God.